0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's story is about the original push for the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. In August 1920, the 19th Amendment secured the requisite 36 ratifications and was adopted into the United States Constitution. The 19th Amendment read, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 19th Amendment did not immediately enfranchise all women, as many women of color still faced significant barriers to practicing that right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Even for those women who were enfranchised, the brief text of the 19th Amendment left a lot of questions unanswered. If women could vote, could they serve on juries? Could they hold public office? What about the array of state laws that still privileged husbands and fathers over wives and daughters in regard to property and earning rights? the National Woman's Party, had been founded in 1916 to fight for the enfranchisement of women and was best known for picketing the White House as silent sentinels. In February 1921, the NWP held a convention to discuss the future of the organization now that the 19th Amendment had been passed. The group's leader, Alice Paul, declared, Now that political freedom has been won, we hope to wipe out sex discrimination in law so that the legal status of women will be self-respecting. By May of that year, the original strategy for removing sex discrimination via federal bill was proving unpopular with supporters. And legal scholar Professor Albert Levitt of George Washington University suggested to Paul that they pursue a new constitutional amendment instead drafting the amendment to everyone's satisfaction proved difficult, but by the celebration for the seventy-fifth anniversary of the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, Paul announced the final form of what she called the Lucretia Mott Amendment, also referred to as the Equal Rights Amendment, which read men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Despite intense opposition from social reformer Florence Kelly, future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter, and Dean of Harvard Law School Roscoe Pound, among others, the NWP persuaded two lawmakers to introduce the amendment into Congress in 1923. Representative Daniel Anthony of Kansas, who was Susan B. Anthony's nephew, and Senator Charles Curtis, also of Kansas, future Vice President to Herbert Hoover. Between 1923 and 1932, Congress held six hearings on the ERA. But it faced fierce opposition until the mid-1930s, By the mid-1930s, support for the ERA began to increase dramatically as congressional subcommittees started to report the amendment favorably nearly every year after 1936. In 1940, the Republican Party added the ERA to its party platform. Four years later, the Democratic Party did the same. As the ERA was gaining strength in the 1940s, Alice Paul rewrote the amendment, to echo the 15th and 19th Amendments. As several Congressional members advised Paul, such a rewording of the amendment would help it gain even more strength in Congress. By 1943, she had revised the amendment, so that it now read, Section 1. Equality of Rights Under the Law Shall Not Be Denied or Abridged by the United States, or by any state, on account of sex. Section 2. Congress and the several states shall have the power within their respective jurisdictions to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Section 3. This amendment shall take effect five years after the date of ratification. On October twelfth, 1971, the House of Representatives finally voted on the ERA, introduced by Michigan Democrat Martha Griffiths. The vote passed 354 to 24, with 51 not voting. On March 22, 1972, the Senate also passed the bill 84 to 8, with 8 not voting. The approved text kept the first substantive section of Alice Paul's 1943 version, but Congress members had changed the language of the two enabling clauses that detailed how the ERA would be enforced and put into effect. To deal with the criticism of ERA congressional opponents, pro-ERA Congress members had taken out the phrase and the several states from the second clause leaving the amendment's enforcement power only to Congress, and reduced the timeline for how long states had to update their laws from five years to only two years. Congress also attached a seven-year deadline to the ERA for how long the amendment had to secure the 38 states necessary for ratification of a constitutional amendment. Once Congress approved, the ERA went to the state legislatures for ratification. By the end of 1973, 30 states had ratified, but only five more ratified by the original seven-year deadline. Congress extended the deadline to 1982, although opponents contended that they could not do so with the simple majority vote that they took. In any case, No further states ratified the ERA, so by the 1982 deadline, there were still only 35 states that had ratified, three short of the needed 38. Between 2017 and 2020, three additional states ratified the ERA, Nevada in 2017, Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020. In January 2020, the Attorneys General of Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia filed a lawsuit to require the Archivist of the United States to carry out his statutory duty of recognizing the complete and final adoption of the ERA. Alabama, Louisiana, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Tennessee moved to intervene in the case. The case has been winding its way through the courts, and is currently in appeal. On March 17, 2021, the House of Representatives voted 222 to 204 to remove the time limit on ratification. The bill is awaiting a vote in the Senate. To help us understand more about the early history of the ERA, I'm joined now by Dr. Rebecca DeWolf, author of the new book Gendered citizenship, the original conflict over the Equal Rights Amendment, 1920 to 1963. So hi Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to be here. So I would like to start by just asking how you got interested in this topic of the early years of the Equal Rights Amendment, early years being like a you know, four decade span
1: yeah. <laughs> of the Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> It's a great question. Um, it's kind of I got a long answer for you if that's okay. Sure. Um, so my first year of my PhD program, um, so this is like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, so a while ago. My PhD advisor, I was um, his teaching assistant for a class, and he asked me to give a lecture on the ERA. And at that time, I didn't know so much about the ERA, so it was fun to kind of just start digging into it. Mm-hmm. And what really got me into the topic, though, was After the lecture, I opened it up to the class for discussion, and to my amazement, some of the students either one thought that the ERA was already in the Constitution, so there was just like a general lack of knowledge about it, which was surprising, but even more students would say something along the lines of yeah, there's still sex discrimination and there's still disadvantages against women, but we don't see the ERA as the solution to that problem, hmm. and that really, you know, just set off like a lightning bolt of curiosity for me. Um, you know, this idea of why hadn't the persistence of sex discrimination created more of a robust push for the ERA? Why don't people see it as a solution to the problem? Um, and again, this is two thousand eight, two thousand nine, so it's a while ago, and the popular conception of the ERA has changed quite a bit in recent years, which we can talk more about that later. Um, But originally, I just really wanted to solve this puzzle of why this recognition of ongoing sex discrimination didn't cause more people to want the ERA and to support the ERA and to get out and fight for it. And also, just one more thing with that, around the time that I was, you know, needing to get that lecture, I was also taking a graduate course and I had to read a really good book for that course. It was Susan Douglas's "Where the Girls Are," and it's a history of women's portrayal in the media. And she has just like this insightful, really great discussion on how the conflict is often depicted in the media as like a typical cat fight between women. So you have like Gloria Steinem versus Phyllis Schlafly, and so it's like an oversimplification. And the imagery suggests that. Women always constantly fight with each other and they're overly emotional. And the implicit suggestion is that this is why they're not fit for leadership positions. And I really wanted to not approach the ERA in that way. I wanted to get away from the cat fight uh, framework for it. Mm-hmm. As I started to dig into the history, I mean, originally I was just interested about all of the ERA. So I was like obsessive about it, like writing all my graduate papers on it, just mm-hmm. being crazy with it. But then I got more and more interested in the earliest years because so much of the earliest years calls into question so many of the assumptions that many of us might hold about topics in US history. So, for example, you have conservatives and liberals on both sides of the issue, and they were not directly opposed to each other in the conflict. Um, you know, you have conservative ERA supporters, you have conservative ERA opponents, you have liberal ERA supporters. Liberal ERA opponents. Um, And the other thing is many feminists were against the amendment and many feminists were for it. So Mm -hmm. the fact that you're seeing dividing lines that have played out in other topics of US history not playing out the same way in this topic just really made me think, okay, what are what's really going on here? What are they really fighting about? So I mean, so that's really where it all started. Yeah, I, I was
0: fascinated. I have talked a lot on my political podcast about the more recent era, so you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, just the past few years of the uh, the you know sort of struggle to to finally get it into the Constitution. But I didn't know most of this early history, and so when you were looking at this this is you know like i said it's 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 a long it's like four decades of of history here yeah. what are the kinds of sources that you were looking at what you know where where are you getting this information and of course some of it is just you know sort of very public but but what are the the ways that you can tease out this early history
1: so that's a great question and i'm going to have another long answer for you for my methodology and my sources, I approached the ERA very much as I don't want to write a story or a history about like villains versus heroes or you know good guys versus bad guys or over glorify one group and demonize another group. I really wanted to make sure that I found and established like a full picture of each position because one of the things I was trying to do was to figure out how the ERA can fit into other topics of U.S. history and not just be it as a tool to talk about the history of American feminism or, you know, the history of the women's movement. I wanted to see if it fit in somewhere else. And to be able to do that, this, to be able to do that, and this might sound a little corny, but I need to see like all the sides of the puzzle piece, you know, to fit it into the puzzle. So I very much tried to Uh, be kind of empathetic towards the anti-ERA position and the pro-ERA position. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, I will say, and I'm going to get to the sources soon, I promise. But originally, I should mention that when I first came to, okay, my dissertation is going to be on the original ERA conflict, I was under the impression that I think a lot of people assume, partly because when other books on history have given short little Summaries of the ERA in the earliest years, they usually offer something up like, you know, Republicans were for it and Democrats were against it or conservatives were for it and liberals were against it. So I thought, OK, that's probably true. And I will write a typical political history and I'll see what the ERA can tell us about the history of the Republican and Democrat parties. That was my goal. And as I started to dig into the primary sources especially the congressional sources, and I will detail those in one minute, um, I began to realize that that summary was not accurate, um, that you actually do have Democrats, a, a good amount of them supporting the ERA in significant ways, and you have um, a good amount of Republicans and conservatives opposing the ERA in significant ways in the original conflict. So you don't see the dividing line that some other people have offered up in their summaries of it. So. That made me think, oh, my God, I had to rethink my whole project here because it's not going to be a political history and, you know, the way I wanted it to be. And so at that point, I decided I need to let the sources just speak for themselves and stop playing my assumptions on them and to see what words and ideas and reasoning that they keep coming back to in the discourse that was used over and over again. And what I saw was a consistent argument about rights and about citizenship and what does it mean? to be a citizen, what does it mean to be a rights bearing citizen? And what are the rights of citizenship now after the 19th amendment? So I was like, okay, this is gonna be about citizenship because that's what they're literally arguing about. So, um, so then, you know, things kind of took a turn and what was supposed to be a political history became more like an intellectual history, a legal history, a gender history about citizenship. Um, and so the, for the sources I used um, a lot of archival collections On the one hand, I use the typical archival collections that you see on many topics um, that are similar to mine. So, you know, like the uh, papers of um, major women's organizations like the National Women's Party or the League of Women Voters or the National Consumers League, things of that nature, Alice Paul's papers. But then I also was, when I was digging, I was realizing, wow, gosh, there's a lot of men, especially in the uh, drafting period of the ERA. So I wanted to see more about that. you know what, What's going on with that? So Felix Frankfurt, for instance, played a big role in the drafting period and its um, breakdown really. So I went to go look through his papers, San Frasco Pound. And then I also wanted to figure out what was going on with the presidential administration. So I knew FDR and his administration did not like the ERA. So I went to the presidential library to go through some of those papers and see what was happening. Truman, I went to his presidential library because I knew he endorsed it, but then he backed away from it. So I wanted to figure out why that was in Sam Eisenhower. So I did like the typical collections that you normally see. And then I kind of branched out a little bit. Um, And then I have a lot of court cases, which I talk about really in the first two chapters to kind of provide some legal footing for me when I'm talking about the history of masculine citizenship. And then the meat of the sources really is the congressional uh, source materials. I don't know why, I really have no idea why more people haven't used the congressional hearings on the ERA because it's just like a treasure trove of like information. <laughs> it's like wonderful. So from the 1920s up into the early 1960s, uh, Congress held several hearings on the amendment. The House stopped holding hearings in 1948 because of the House Judiciary Committee um, chairman, uh, Emmanuel Seller. He hated the ERA, so he Stopped holding hearings on it. Um, but the Senate still h- held hearings up until the 60s. But these hearings are so important because they're lengthy, A. B, there's a lot of testimony. And they just really provide you with a good idea of the public arguments, hmm. the arguments that they're presenting out there to try to persuade the public you know, for or against the amendment. And so if you're getting after the ideas and the reasoning and the assumptions and expectations that they're putting forward, there you go. It's all right there. Um, So a lot of when I start analyzing the language that they're using, it's from those congressional hearings. So,
0: yeah, you mentioned that it's not a, you know, Democrat versus Republican or liberal versus conservative kind of stance, especially at the beginning, you know, we could argue about what's going on right now with the ERA. But Mm -hmm. um, so you talk about instead this emancipationist versus protectionist Mm -hmm. uh, stance, and I, I found that really helpful framing Uh, Way back in, I think, the fourth episode of uh, this podcast, uh, we talked about Sofinesba Breckenridge. And Breckenridge is a feminist, you know, clearly cares a lot about women's rights and was opposed to the ERA. And I, I remember sort of grappling with that and saying, how could that possibly be? But this framing helps because she's certainly protectionist in that way. So can you talk a little bit about those uh, those two ways of of looking at it, and you know how that sort of helps us sort out what is going on here, and why there are feminists who are opposed to it, and there are conservatives who approve of it?
1: Okay, so um, <laughs> the meat of your book, <laughs> I know, yeah. So maybe what I'll do first is just give a little like here's the main argument and some background on that, and then I'll lead into um, the emancipationism and protectionism and how. Feminism shaped some of the some of the aspects of those positions. So the main argument in my book is that the original conflict created gendered citizenship in the United States. Um, so even though the Nineteenth Amendment uh, disrupted the traditional understanding of American citizenship that had given men authority over women in law and in custom, disparities between men and women's positions persisted because ERA opponents in the original conflict modernize the justification for sex-specific legal treatment. So that's a lot, I know. So I'm just going to break it down. So again, the original era conflict captures the changing nature of American citizenship after the passage of the 19th Amendment because it created U.S.'s gendered citizenship. So it's important to understand that the United States legal system was founded on a profound commitment to the maleness of rights-bearing citizenship. So Legal and political authorities understood white women and then after the Civil War, black women to be citizens and that that they were inhabitants of the country. But when it came to being a full citizen or a citizen who enjoyed all the rights of citizenship, uh, United States laws and customs continued to deny women that status of rights bearing citizenship because they believed women were essentially weak and dependent creatures who required extra special protection. You know, I'm not going to go too fully into the legal history around all that. The first two chapters of my book detail it a lot, so if you want to know, go, go buy the check, book. book. <laughs> so, but just to come back to that um, point here, is that it's important to understand that this category of sex was used before and after the 19th Amendment as a way to basically uh, restrict women's right to hold public office, serve on juries let's see, limit the work that women could do, um, prevent women from working in certain occupations. Uh, for a while, women didn't have an independent nationality status. And there was also an array of sex-based laws and customs uh, based, again, on sex. So yeah, sex-based laws and customs that continue to favor husbands and fathers over wives and daughters with regard to property, earnings, contracting, inheritance, and guardianship rights. So there's still all these um, policies and laws and customs that are sex-based that are quite restricted for women. So when the 19th Amendment comes around, all those things don't just go away. So when the 19th Amendment, you know, when lawmakers passed the 19th Amendment in 1920, uh, they removed sex, that's what the language of the 19th Amendment is, removing sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote, which implicitly affirms women's right to vote. But because it removes sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote, a lot of questions popped up of, oh, well, can sex still be a valid reason for withholding these other rights? Like, what do we do about that? Does voter status command other rights? Or if you're a voter, can you now serve on juries? Can you hold public office? Um, And then also, what about all those uh, marital status laws that still restrict women's autonomy in the home? And then from those questions, bigger questions came, like, what are the rights of citizenship now? And so the debates about the transformative possibilities of the 19th Amendment played out in several court cases and the political discourse of the air. But for our purposes, it evolved into the original ERA conflict because two different interpretations of American citizenship um, developed, which I call emancipationism on one hand and protectionism on the other hand. Emancipationists were ERA supporters. They supported the ERA Um, and they supported the ERA as a way to ensure that men and women could participate as citizens on the same uh, terms. And I use the word emancipationists and emancipationism to capture that pro ERA position because they often use that exact word in their arguments for the ERA. They would often say things like the ERA will emancipate women or we need the ERA to emancipate women. And just as an aside, when Alice Paul began to draft the, you know, start to do early drafts of the amendment herself, she based her earliest drafts on the language of the 13th Amendment, which freed enslaved persons after the Civil War. And she did that on purpose because she very much thought that Especially the marital status laws created a form of involuntary servitude for women. So this idea that women um, hold a subservient legal status and only um, they will only be emancipated through um, a constitutional amendment that will guarantee equal rights for men and women citizens. So that's really the heart of emancipationism: this idea that women need to be emancipated. It's only going to come through the strength of a constitutional amendment that's going to ensure absolute sexual equality. But Emancipationism and the original conflict, so from the 20s up until the early 1960s, it had conservative and liberal variations. Mm-hmm. So you have conservative emancipationists like Senator Edward Burke, who was very influential and in helping the ERA ERA out during the 1938 congressional hearing, which I talked about in chapter four. And so For conservative emancipationists, they found in the ERA arguments that aligned with their support for private enterprise and their criticisms of the government's involvement in the economy. And there's also like a little bit of legal formalism going on there where they would say things like, you know, if you have sex not being valid, a valid reason for withholding the right to vote, you can't then use sex as another reason to withhold another right. We have to have things be consistent. But then you also have liberal emancipationists um, like Emma Guffrey-Miller, Senator Claude Pepper, who was very influential in the late 1940s at the ERA. Um, And so for them, while conservative emancipationists saw it more in terms of negative rights, how, you know, thinking of rights as a way to um, protect yourself from government intrusion, liberal emancipationists saw it more in terms of positive rights, that If we got the amendment, we would be able to ensure social benefits for men and women alike, that men and women citizens both deserve to have um, economic security and social well being promised from the government. Um, So it's just it's interesting that they still have the same core idea of there needs to be one standard of rights for men and women citizens, but they just varied in how they would use the amendment once passed, you know, so that's emancipationism. And then on the other hand, you have protectionism, protectionists. They opposed the ERA, protectionists were ERA opponents. Um, and they opposed it as a threat to women's natural right to special protection. Uh, they believed that there were different societal functions for men and women citizens, which required sex-based rights. And you know, it's a little bit more confusing for to explain protectionism because some people have assumptions about what that actually means. So in my book, when I'm talking about protectionists, I am not referring exclusively to advocates of special labor legislation for women. So special labor legislation arose in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as a way to regulate women's working conditions and shield them from economic exploitation. So, you know, it prevented women from working in certain occupations, didn't let them work at night, sometimes gave them minimum wage laws, things of that nature. They were those laws were based on the idea that all mother, or all women were mothers or potential mothers, and because of that, the government had a responsibility to shield women, especially from um, economic exploitation, to protect their roles in the home. For protectionism, though, you have liberal-leaning protectionists who love those labor laws are major backers of those labor laws, but you also have conservative protectionists who do not like labor laws, so they hated the ERA. Not because of those labor laws. Um, They so both conservative and liberal protectionists believed that women required special protection because, in their minds, all mothers, all women were mothers or potential mothers. But conservative protectionists believed that women's special protection should come from the male head of the household. Liberal protectionists believed that government reform efforts could also serve as an effective instrument of protection for women. Um, Even with those differences, though, you still see them applying or um, appealing to these same core principles that you will ruin the American family or the stability of American society if you subject women to equal rights, because women have needs that men don't have. Women have roles in the home that men can't do. And because of that, we had to provide women with their own set of rights.
0: It's really fascinating. I think too, that uh, it's interesting thinking about the kinds of special protections that they were asking for for women that would have helped everybody, but they were able to get some of those protections like minimum wage or, you know, a number of hours you could work, things like that uh, for women. And that, you know, over time, of course, before we get to, to now and the fight uh, in the ERA today, uh, there are some of those laws that apply to everybody. And so you don't need mm-hmm. special protections for women because you have special protections for everybody or not special. I mm-hmm. guess you have protections for all workers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, just to go with that point, like emancipation is the liberal emancipationists would be like, we're not against labor laws. We just think that it should be based on the nature of the work and not the sex of the worker. Yeah. So, yeah. So you made a great point about like, when things started, when like with the great depression and the new deal, the government started to expand in its way of how it treated men workers, not just mm-hmm. women workers. Um, So, you have like the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, which did provide minimum wages and um, limitations on work hours for men and women citizens. And so, you would think if it was just about labor laws, then that would mean more liberal protections would come over, right? But they didn't, because it wasn't just about labor laws for them. They were concerned about other laws in addition. So, I actually have a quote from Frances Perkins. Um, She's the first uh, woman. Secretary of Labor, but she was a strong ERA opponent, and so she actually testified at one ERA hearing in 1945, and so she said that unlike the Fair Labor Standards Act, her state-level labor laws, uh, you know, the ones like these sex-specific labor laws, were specifically, quote, designed to safeguard women by providing women with days of rest and rest periods and prohibiting dangerous work for women at night or in places deemed unwholesome to the morals and health of women. She then concluded that these state-level special labor laws were, quote, based on, ready, the unique biological function of women and their responsibilities as homemakers and mothers of future citizens. So to us, that might seem just like, wow, that's really conservative. But To her, it wasn't. It made perfect sense, you know? So especially because she's applying to the government as a way to uh, provide protection. But in their minds, the best way to help women was to empower women with protection. So their sex-specific laws, not just the labor laws, they were they liked sex-specific laws that also required men to provide for their families. And, and their idea they kind of reframed as women. Ha- a married woman have a right to be provided for from their husbands. Um, in their minds, these kinds of sex-specific labor laws attended to women's special needs and actually lifted women up to what they called real equality. So it's, in their minds, real sexual equality or sexual equity or sexual fairness came from sex-specific treatment.
0: Yeah. And uh, we should point out, and you point this out in the book, that if for all of these discussions, sex and gender were the same, that they were not distinguishing. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. And so I,
0: I think uh, for a modern audience,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe I can touch to, on that too. Yeah. That's actually really important for understanding the periodization. I don't know if that's too gimmicky of a word, but like <laughs> to understand the differences between the first and second conflict, there was a profound difference in how they understood sex and gender. So In the original ERA conflict, the participants on both sides, so both supporters and opponents, believed that men and women were inherently different. They didn't separate the concept of gender from the concept of sex. So by sex, I'm referring to um, general anatomical differences between the spectrums of male and female persons. And by gender, I'm broadly referring to like the qualities and values that society attaches to men and women. But in the original ERA conflict, it was just, they just thought of sex, they thought gender was a part of sex in a way that could never be broken, right? So so for both emancipationists and protectionists, they believed that men and women were destined to perform different uh, roles in society. Even emancipationists thought that. Um, emancipationists believed, just like protectionists, that women were society's uh, natural caregivers and nurturers. The difference is Emancipationists said, well, they should be free, though, to choose how they're going to exercise their benevolent nature, whether through motherhood or some other compassionate cause. And they also said, even though men and women are inherently different, that doesn't mean that the law can't hold men and women to the same standard of rights. And protectionists, for them, motherhood embodied womanhood. So, I mean, that was like the key for them of how women exercised um, their natural caregiving Responsibilities, um, and they believe that that necessitates sex-specific legal treatment to protect motherhood. You had to have sex-specific rights. Yeah. So, and that so that's going to change though quite uh, consequentially for the ERA conflict. Um, by the late 1960s, there was an ideological development where activists and intellectuals started to separate the concept of gender from the concept of sex such that the stereotypical behavioral traits generally assigned to men and women were seen as socially um, created concepts and not essential products in nature. And so then that freed women from what had seemed to be biologically inescapable roles in the home and as society's caregivers. So you start to see ERA supporters, emancipationists, advocating for, you know, both men and women have duties in the home and in the workplace. Both men and women should be caregivers and providers. Um, And then that change encouraged even more liberals to come away from the protectionist position and back the ERA as a way to secure social benefits for the male or female um, parent primarily responsible for childcare. And then that change left the protectionist position in the hands of the conservative protectionists. So, and then that's how you get the rise of someone like Phyllis Schaffley and whatnot. So,
0: yeah. So let's uh, jump ahead to the present then, because this is still an ongoing struggle. Yeah, <laughs> We still don't have an Equal Rights Amendment. There are still people, especially now in the current formulation, these are Democrats, these are feminists, who are arguing that we need the Equal Rights Amendment. So, in, and you talk some about this in, in the epilogue, but why are we still in this fight. <laughs> what is going on? Why is there still not an equal rights amendment in the constitution?
1: Well, I would say it's because the protectionists won <laughs> the original year of conflict. <laughs> um, you know, one of like the underlying arguments is so much of what we have today is because of what played out in the original year conflict. The protections were able to put forward this concept of limited constitutional equality and limited equality is the best way to go for men and women citizens. And so because protectionists were able to push that forward and kind of stamp out the ERA at the end of the original conflict, you know, I very much believe that there's still this um, prevailing notion that actually, you know, it really is better if we just treat people completely different based on whatever their reproductive anatomy is. Um, and that, I mean, that leads to, you know, the perpetuation of the sexual division of labor, you know, funnily, women more as, oh, they should be the caregivers and men should be the providers, even today, with the recent uh, state ratifications, you still see protectionist arguments coming back around against the ERA. I had like a great quote from one uh, current-day uh, ERA opponent who wrote like an op-ed in 2019. I, I write about it in my book and the epilogue, and she's arguing against the ERA is right before Virginia ratified it, and she said in her op-ed something along the lines of like, if the ERA is passed, every hard-fought protection that we have strived for to get women will be lost. So again, it's this idea, it's not that ERA opponents' protections are against women having rights. They're not. They actually think women should have rights, but they think it should just be specific to women. They don't think men and women should have the same rights. So they think that there's responsibilities and roles that women have in society that men cannot do. And because of that, women have certain rights that have to be protected. So if you had equal rights, then you would, in their minds, be taking away indispensable rights away from women. And I think that that's a fear that is prevalent for many people. So my original you know, research question to myself when I first stumbled on the ERI given that lecture was, why hasn't the recognition of the persistent persistence of sex discrimination encouraged more of a push for the ERA. And I, I think my answer is because protectionists create this belief of sex-specific rights being more legitimate and more um, fair and actually mean more justice if you have sex-specific rights. And I think a lot of people still think that way. Yeah, it's fascinating. And of course, we have so many
0: fewer, I mean, obviously there are still things that the, the ERA would solve, but some of these Mm -hmm. things like women can now fight in combat positions and, you know, a lot of the things that, um, that were used by people like Phyllis Shafley, you know, are, are no longer a a thing that we need to think about. But I think about, you know, I didn't have to register for the draft when I turned 18 because I'm a woman, Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) you know, like there are still things out there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so two things to that, like, uh, the right to be exempted from military. service was something that protectionists argued quite a bit. They had like certain rights that they would come back to that. These are women's rights being exempted from military service, being shielded from the ravages of capitalism and being kept safe in their domestic roles, having maternity benefits only for women. And so those were arguments that were put forth in the original conflict that Phyllis Schafly tapped back into. Mm -hmm. But I would say though, the real core, one of the really central arguments of protectionists is, the law has to be free to treat men and women differently on account of sex alone. So even though things are much better than they were when Alice Paul um, first wrote the amendment, the fact that the law is still able, you know, it's only, sex is only held to the intermediate level constitutional scrutiny. I don't want to get into all that legal <laughs> mumbo jumbo. But the fact that you can still, the, in some ways, the law can still treat men and women differently that's good for protectionists. They're quite happy about that. So yeah. I would like to be
0: protected from the ravages of capitalism while we're at it. I know,
1: but I think <laughs> most <men laughs> because I'm a woman. Protected but... too.
0: <laughs> so how can people get your book?
1: Okay, that's a great question. So my website, I have some links up there. Uh, my website is www.rebeccadwolf.com, pretty sure. It's also on Amazon. It's available through the press, University of Nebraska Press, and yeah, it should, I think you can order really anywhere that books are sold. So that's what I've been told. Excellent. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This was
0: a really fun, uh, fun read for me, fun understanding of something that I only knew the more recent history of. Uh, so awesome. thank you. And thanks for, for joining me.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at unsunghistorypodcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.